we're going to we're going to move quickly here and I will not be not be reading all those quotes that are on your sheet, but they're there for you. Uh, we're going to talk about the sacraments this morning. Just a quick reminder of where we are. We uh, we're talking about spiritual formation specifically. Uh, we've talked about how uh, the the work of the spirit is is changing and reordering our desires and our loves. Uh, we said what we need is more than just uh, new ideas. We need more than just new information. We need to change what we love, which is a whole lot more difficult. Uh, and so what what we're what we're doing when we talk about spiritual formation is we're talking about this process where we are giving ourselves to the work of the spirit in our lives. Uh, Jesus gives us various means by which uh, he gives us himself and communicates his grace and all the benefits and all that he's done for us to us. And so when we talk about these practices that we are going to engage in, these are really ways that we can sort of. Um, get in the way of the Spirit's work in our lives, put ourselves in places where he will uh, be at work in us. Uh, This doesn't mean that we don't, that there isn't a responsibility on our part. There is. We're to put ourselves in the way of these things, but we recognize that, uh, as John Murray has said, we work because God works, which is a good summary of Philippians 2. So uh, another quote there from uh, Dallas Willard, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Uh, we, we've talked, we've kind of gone back and forth between individual disciplines and corporate disciplines. We're back to one that is exclusively corporate, which is uh, the participation of the sacraments. It's not something that we would do alone. And there are important formative aspects to the fact that it is corporate. And so we'll talk some about that. What I hope to do, this is why this is hard. Maybe rather than telling you why it's hard, we could just get into it. But uh, uh it would be really great to, uh, to really drill down into the theology of our sacraments. And that's important to do because it has a lot to do with why and how sacraments are formative in our lives. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do all of that this morning. So we'll, um, what I want to focus on, though, is try to give uh, some, a brief explanation as to the theology of the sacraments. And then spend more of our time under each of these headings dealing with how the sacraments form us how we are changed by the sacraments and try and get into more of the emphasis of this uh, of this class in general, which is the practices of. Uh, so just as a quick introductory question here, what are some reasons that the sacraments in particular can so often get left out of our conversations about growth in the Christian life? I'm obviously making an assumption that they do get left out. Um, and if you disagree with that, that, that's fine. I hope I'm wrong on that, but I don't think I am. Uh, why, why is that the case? Why might we not uh, think primarily of the sacraments? If you say, if somebody asks you, how am I, how can I grow in the Christian life? Do you think maybe your first answer would be, well, you need to be participating and partaking in the Lord's Supper every week? I think maybe not. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Growing up, I was never taught that they were really that important. Mm-hmm. It was just not emphasized. Yeah. And I, I don't think <laughs> Yeah, 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 I I think they, um, and this will get into, um, broadly speaking in evangelicalism, that that, uh, most of the time the sacraments are viewed as um, something that are, that they're only, they're merely symbolic, they are aids to your own uh, mental process and your own meditation (laughs) And there's nothing more beyond that. 
And so we kind of don't know what to do with them then. They, they, would, be down, they would downplay the significance of them uh, if that's all they are. If they're just aids to our memory, they think like, well, it seems like the preaching of the word is much more intellectually engaging. And so many other things we do would seem to be more intellectually engaging. So we should probably emphasize that more. The sacraments become very ritualistic. Yeah. In a lot of churches. Yeah. Yeah. They can become, yeah, just bare ritual. ritual. Yeah. I would go along with that. I think they, they retreat that point that we do it on a once a month or once a quarter basis mm-hmm. because it's not that important. Right. It's always kind of going back to, well, we don't want it to become a ritual yep. and meaningless. Yes. It's interesting, though, that in evangelical circles, baptism becomes very important, but the Lord's Supper kind of becomes, oh, and yeah, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, don't forget, we have the Lord's Supper this week. Mm-hmm. But also, growing up in the Baptist tradition, both sacraments, of course, we don't call it sacraments, but both of them were emphasized as my work and not God's work. Yeah. So oh, it's what you are doing. That's a good you're taking point. the supper, and when you're being baptized, mm-hmm. it was. So I wonder that's if that's really part good. of it when we say a growth, maybe we're hesitant because we think of it as something that we do, yeah. not God imparting grace. Yeah, it would be like a uh, this is a profession of faith in some ways, more than it is anything else. Yeah. So yeah. we moved to. Uh, weekly observance of the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper in pro-life activities that I get involved with, I brush shoulders with a lot of our Catholic brethren. And of course, they observe the sacrament every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously with some differences in sure. what they believe versus what we believe. But nevertheless, it is the sacrament. It is the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I have yet to meet a Catholic who does not take the Lord's Supper very, very seriously. seriously. Yeah, yeah. And that is in my own well, That's heart. the whole point of their service. The whole point True. of being there is to take the Lord's Well, Supper. yes, the homily is important, but I think the sacrament does over, over, over arch it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, this has been something that has made it become more important in my own eyes of being able to brush shoulders with my Catholic brother. Yeah. I would not feel comfortable taking it. Uh, in a Catholic church, and mm-hmm. I've been present when it's been there, and I don't usually do that. Yeah, but uh, it's yeah. You know, it, it look to other parts of the church and see how a lot more mm-hmm. emphasis on its importance. Yeah, see that. yeah, Rick. We spend a lot more time, and money, and planning on the other sacrament, marriage. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um. Okay, that's good. We could actually talk a long time about those things. Uh. One, uh, one thing that I do think, uh, at least one uh, pretty significant reason that is underlying a lot of this is that there is an, uh, an underlying Gnosticism that is pretty pervasive, certainly in uh, evangelicalism, but I think it's even broader than that in the post-Enlightenment Western world. But um, uh, Gnosticism is uh, kind of a catch-all term that most basically says that uh, physical matter is unspiritual. Uh, at, at best, it's inconvenient, and the body is something out of which you want to escape. At worst, physical at worst, physical matter is is evil, and the body is evil, and you want to escape. So, Gnosticism was an early heresy that would say there's uh, some gnosis, some knowledge that you could uh, that you could attain some kind of secret knowledge that you could attain that would allow you to rise above your physicality. And so you've got this, uh, you've got this distinction then between kind of the physical world and the spiritual world uh, to the point where they are set opposed to one another. 
And what would be underlying that then is that that uh, the physical that, that there's just no way that God could use something physical to communicate his grace to us, to show his grace to us. And so I think that's actually underlying a whole lot of of our issues. And so I've got there on your sheet that there's this um, a few ways that we might see this in evangelicalism. Um that the end of the Bible, the end of God's redemptive purposes is really a disembodied heaven rather than the way the Bible describes it, which is an embodied, resurrected existence of new creation in the new heavens, and the new earth. That'd be one place where you might see this. Um, yeah, they, they, we would shed these physical bodies at the end. Um, other examples we don't need to get into here. Let's keep moving. Uh, here's the antidote for Gnosticism. Jesus. <laughs> Um, and uh, you could say that about pretty much everything in Christianity, but the the specific ways would be Jesus's incarnation. Um, there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. I couldn't find it this week. I think it's in Mere Christianity. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's talking about he, he says God loves matter; He created it. And so, a basic, a, a robust theology of creation helps us to see that God has no problem. Um, showing forth his glory to us in and through uh, creation. That's actually was his original intention and will be his final, uh, the, the final state of things in the end. Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on an embodied existence in the incarnation, actual flesh and blood. Uh, he died an actual death and then was raised in an actual physical embodied, uh, resurrected and glorified body. And so Jesus is our uh, is the kind of the paradigm shift for us and the one that we need to push back on with our Gnostic tendencies Uh, that then helps us when we approach the sacraments, Um, because in the New Testament, generally, we'll actually talk some about this in uh, Colossians this morning, that, that Paul's central category in the way in which he thinks about salvation is in terms of union with Jesus. We are united to Christ this risen embodied Christ. And in that relationship with him, all of the blessings of his life, death and resurrection come to us by the spirit. And so the sacraments are intimately bound up with our being united to Jesus. Um, These are going to be ways in which he uh, he communicates his life to us, his life and benefits of his death and resurrection to us and the way he gives himself to us in these physical, tangible things. Okay, Uh, so sacraments generally. Um, what is a sacrament? Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. The, the Westminster Standards, I mean, they've got weaknesses here and there, but for sure. But the uh, on the sacraments, they are really, really good. Uh, so I would commend that to you. I have in the further reading at the bottom the particular sections, and a lot of it's found in uh, printed for you. But uh, here's, here's, what's, here's a good question, question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means uh, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Okay. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, often called the means of grace, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Okay, And the question 91, I think this is one where it shows that we're not talking here just about something that's going to uh, make us merely think differently. This isn't a bare memorial. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? That salvation thought, this isn't justification. This is salvation thought holistically. 
by the whole, the process by which we are then made into the image of Jesus and um, and then glorified in the end. Sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them. It's nothing nothing magic about these ordinary elements. Or in him that doth administer them. It's not about the pastor who's administering him, uh, administering these. But only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. Okay, so it's about the blessing of Christ, his institution uh, of these sacraments, and then the working of his spirit. And the spirit is, is critical in understanding why and how the sacraments actually shape and form us in significant ways. And then you see that in question 92, sacraments, a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant, Jesus and his benefits, person and benefits, are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Significant that it says believers. It's communicated to faith. Uh, It's to faith, the way in which we would receive these. Um, Okay, let's just kind of try and keep moving here. Uh, I'm not going to read those uh, from the confession there. A couple points to highlight. One, and I've already done this, one is that the Shorter Catechism lists the sacraments as an effectual means of salvation. That's a strong statement. And I've said there's nothing magical in them. It's the word working by the power of the Spirit delivered to or received by faith. Okay? Jesus gives gives himself to us in these sacraments, not in a magic way, um, but to faith. Okay, Uh, and then uh, secondly, and this is we didn't uh, read this in the confession, but it's in 27 two there. There's a spiritual relationship between the sign water, bread or wine and the thing signifying signified, which could be regeneration, forgiveness and adoption. Uh, Point being, these aren't empty signs. There's a connection between the sign and the thing signified and they are connected together together. and that's important for us. So a uh, great quote from Michael Horton, and I recommend his article to you. You can get it for free online that uh, and there's I've got the the link to it there at the end. It's horribly formatted at that link. Um, <laughs> copy it and paste it or use like Instapaper or some kind of something like that to make it easier. But it's a really helpful article to set forth a reformed view of the sacraments. Here's what it says. For the reform, the sacraments are objective means of grace, but not of infused grace. It is the promise of the gospel identical to the proclaimed word. This is helpful. That is confirmed by the use of the sacraments, just as the gospel proclaimed retains its nature and efficacy, whether we believe it or not. I can stand up in the pulpit and proclaim the gospel and whether somebody believes it or not, it doesn't change the the efficacy of the gospel that's proclaimed in the same way. We do not make the sacraments effective by our faith, preparation, works, or any other activity. And yet we must receive Christ in them if we are to profit from them. That's where we say they are delivered to or communicated to faith. Okay? Uh, We'll look at specific biblical passages of each sacrament below. Um, So a couple couple three points here. How are the sacraments formative? Uh, This is the most basic way. Your sacraments give us Christ and his benefits through the work of the Holy Spirit when joined with the word and received by faith. So again, it's not just a bare memorial. Uh, They nourish our faith because we receive Jesus in them. A quote from Leonard Vanderzee. Yeah, as the word brings us Christ for our faith to grasp through hearing... 
So the sacraments bring us Christ for our faith to grasp through seeing and tasting and touching. Both word and sacrament bring Christ to our souls by faith through the Holy Spirit. But in the sacraments, we get Christ in a way that is particularly suited to our humanity. We get Christ through water, bread, and wine. That's a helpful way to to see that. And this is why the word is always connected to sacraments. Um, We we receive, uh, I think we've got this Robert Bruce quote later on. That we receive the same Christ through the problem, the preached word and the sacraments, but we receive Christ differently. Same Christ, same Jesus, receive him differently, though. Okay. Uh, sacraments take our bodies seriously. Good quote from Calvin there that I won't read that, that just says uh, we recognize that we are embodied creatures and, and Jesus has given us these embodied, tangible, physical elements by which he will nourish our faith. So it takes our bodies seriously. Then finally, sacraments affirm the goodness of our material world. Um, Jesus takes these ordinary things, uh, this ordinary water, ordinary bread, and ordinary wine, and they become means by which he is going to communicate uh, himself to us and give himself to us. Um, Jamie Smith makes the point, too, that uh, the Lord's Supper in particular affirms the goodness of culture as well. Because... Uh, you don't find wine uh, naturally in the uh, in the world around us, nor do you find bread in the world around us. It requires humans taking these things and forming them and making it and being the, the culture creating uh, uh, image bearers that we are and making these things into something, um, which is a really fascinating insight. So even in this, God affirms culture in that way as well. Okay, sorry, I've got to keep moving. Baptism. What is baptism? Uh, there is more Old Testament background to baptism than just circumcision, but the point I want to make this morning is that that's part of it. Okay, Genesis 17, uh, that's on your sheet. This is a sign of the covenant that's going to be a guarantee to Abraham and his offspring uh, that God will keep his promises. Okay, so you've got that, uh, you've got that passage from Genesis 17. Uh, yeah let's, let's, yeah, let's read this real quick. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, it goes on to say how important that is. So here's how we need to understand circumcision. It is the sign and the seal of this promise of the Lord to, to Abraham. And it would be the, the sign or the, the right of entrance into the community of Israel. So, for instance, when uh, we'll look at the Passover in Exodus 12, when uh, when God is giving Moses instruction to give to the Israelites as to how Passover is supposed to happen or how even you're to celebrate Passover, um, you're supposed to get a lamb to sacrifice that would feed the whole of the people in your house. Those, and it wouldn't just be ethnic Israel, just not just your children, but uh, but slaves, foreigners, people that have come in who have been males who have been circumcised as well. So it would be the right of entrance into the covenant community by circumcision. And uh, and then so New Testament, you've got uh, these classic passages that we won't read right now. Matthew 28, where Jesus uh, gives this in the Great Commission, the call to baptize. 
uh, and then words from Paul in Galatians 3, uh, Romans 6, and then 1 Corinthians 12, look at real quick. For one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're made to drink of one spirit. Uh, we'll actually see this morning in Colossians 2. I got all this time just to kind of prep prep you guys for the sermon. Uh, uh, baptism's mentioned in, the, in Colossians 2 as well in verses 11 and 12, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the sermon. But here's a good quote from John Murray. Baptism signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is because believers are united to Christ in the efficacy of his death, in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his grace, that they are one body. They're united to Christ and therefore to one another. Of this union, baptism is a sign and seal. Um, okay, so a quote there from Larger Catechism. 165, I'll leave that for you to read later. Think of baptism in this way. It's the sacrament of initiation. Sacrament of initiation. Uh, That's how uh, Michael Horton describes it as well. Obviously, we're not talking about infant baptism this morning. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that if you want to. We don't have time this morning. Uh, The question to ask then is, how are our desires reordered by baptism? How are we formed more into the image of Jesus by this? So I have what it symbolizes here for us. Baptism symbolizes union with Christ. That passage in Romans 6 is rich there. We could also say Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Uh, It symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2, Paul is, uh, or Peter is, uh, this is his sermon at Pentecost. And he, he ties baptism to forgiveness of sins. And you remember in the Nicene Creed, we confess Uh, We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. It symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. It also symbolizes the new birth. By the way, all of these are found in the larger catechism answer when we talk about um, uh, what baptism is about. Uh, New birth, similar to Romans 6 in the passage in Titus 3. Uh, Baptism symbolizes adoption in Galatians 3.26, which is listed above for you there. It mentions uh, us becoming children by faith. And then baptism is mentioned in the very next sentence. Uh, it symbolizes resurrection as well. Again, Romans 6, 5 and Colossians 2. Uh, these next few I want to emphasize is that uh, baptism, and this is where I think it could be really helpful in terms of how this would practically form us. And that's that baptism gives us a new personal identity as well as a new corporate identity. Yeah, Rick. Doesn't baptism also symbolize death? You die with Christ. Yes, in the. Yeah, and that's good. In the and even in Colossians two this morning, we'll see that um, both Colossians two and Romans six associate baptism with death, burial, and resurrection. And what's important about that, and this is John Murray makes a really strong case about this, particularly re- regarding Romans six, because this gets into how we baptize. Um, and the, the mode by which we would baptize. Because what he's saying, and I think he's right, is that in both of those passages, we can't just isolate those as individual things, saying baptism is just this. But Paul's point is really that uh, it's union with Christ as a whole in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so uh, that's the, the real point is that it symbolizes union with Christ in the whole of what he has accomplished for us. But yes, there is specific association uh, with burial uh, even and death. Uh, 
So new identity personally and corporately, one, it marks the entrance into God's family. We've already said this about adoption, but I want to emphasize it in a different way. Uh, and this is so much we need to start over Uh, when we think of uh, the church as the New Testament does as primarily a family which is the uh, there there are a lot of images used of the church but Sinclair Ferguson makes the case that that the governing image of the New Testament church is one of family that helps us in understanding the sacraments as well and so it's an entrance into God's family. And that's when we talk about adoption, that, that makes sense. And so what baptism does is over and over, it emphasizes the unity of the church. There's one baptism, Ephesians 4, where Paul makes that point. So it, it emphasizes and symbolizes the unity and that you are baptized into this group of people that look very differently from one another. Uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation, different socioeconomic statuses, all those sorts of things. You're baptized into this, and we are one body, one family. Uh, it emphasizes the community of the church. Um, you have a whole set of brothers and sisters at that point, okay? And then this is why there, that last vow, and I love the way our uh, baptismal liturgy goes, because the, the, when a baptism occurs, there's a question to the congregation at the end. You, as the congregation, make a vow that you will help these parents in raising this child. So there's this recognition of this family, familial aspect. Um, you got to keep moving, sorry. Uh, baptism marks us out from the world. And this is where I, I, I do think um, it may be that in Baptist circles, this is more of the emphasis where it would mark us out from the world to be a profession of faith. And there is that element. This is seen in uh, the Old Testament precursors to our New Testament sacraments. But baptism does, I mean, and in other cultures, that's a much bigger deal. Um, quick illustration, there was, uh, there was a pastor that uh, in this email group with, and it talked about how uh, a, a woman in his congregation uh, who's from China had come to faith in Christ. And baptism was a huge deal because it was going to sever ties in, in her family if she made this very public uh, this public mark of entrance into God's people. And, uh, and so it's a huge deal in that way and that it marks us out. It cuts ties in some ways. Uh, it creates more significant ties, but it's a big deal in that way. And in the Book of Common Prayer, the baptismal vows that you take, the way you respond to them is by saying, I renounce them. You, I renounce the devil. I renounce sin. And so it is marking us out in this really powerful way. Uh, And then finally, uh, baptism marks our entrance into God's missional community, which is the church. But I just want to emphasize the missional character of the church as a whole. And so when you are baptized into the church, you are baptized into God's mission in the world. You are baptized into his work of redemption. Uh, because this community of the church is the sign, the foretaste, and the, the instrument of God's kingdom work in the world now. So there's this missional component to baptism as well. Again, we can talk so much about it. Uh, so how do we give ourselves to the grace of God in baptism? One, remember your own. You've got a new identity. And every single time a child or an adult is baptized in our service, that's an opportunity to remember your own baptism. There's a story of... Uh, I think it was John Wesley, uh, where his mother, when he would get in trouble, would say, no, you can't do that. You're baptized. 
And she would hold him to it by his baptism. What's she talking about? She's saying, uh, you have a new identity. You belong to Jesus now. And this is kind of the way Paul talks too. Don't live as you used to be. Live as who you are now in Christ. You've got a new identity. And so in very practical ways, uh, baptism has to do with our, our everyday life. Improve your own. This becomes a source of great assurance to us. Kind of a weird way to talk about it, but I've got the larger catechism question for you. How is our baptism to be improved by us? And the significance of this is that, uh, and the confession's great on this too, is that the, the grace that, we would, uh, that, that Jesus would give to us in baptism is not tied just to the moment when it's administered, but it's something, a way in which through the whole of our life, God continues to bless us and use our one-time baptism to be a means of grace to us. And the Heidelberg's good question there on, um, on assurance, how it assures us. Uh, third way, take seriously the symbolism. Then uh, fourth, take your vow during a baptism seriously. It's a vow to your family members that we're making. Okay, five minutes on the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> what is it? Uh, Old Testament background, primarily the Passover, uh, but it's really a fulfillment of all covenant meals that you read about in the Old Testament. Uh, I think Passover is sort of the governing precursor to uh, to ba- or to Lord's Supper. I'll leave those facts for you to read. This is from a book called uh, Given for You by Keith Matheson. It's on the book table. It was on the book table. I think it still is. It's uh, it's a fantastic book on the Lord's Supper. Uh, quite a bit to it, but uh, it's accessible, though. Uh, the New Testament passages, Matthew 26, this is the institution of it. The, the point of that passage is just to say that the Lord's Supper was... Uh, was instituted at a Passover meal. This is when Jesus decides to do this. When he's in the upper room, they are um, they're celebrating the Passover. Jesus is intentional about that. Uh, the New Testament authors want us to see that this is a new Passover because Jesus, by his death, is leading a new exodus. No longer are we slaves to Egypt, um, nor are we slaves to sin anymore. We are led out of that. And so this is a new exodus that Jesus is bringing about. The Passover or the Lord's Supper is uh, is a Passover, a new Passover as well. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. So intentional uh, connection there. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16 and 17. Cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation or a fellowship? Koinonia in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then 1 Corinthians 11, which is Paul's statement that has in it this uh, restatement of the words of institution with particular application to the Corinthians. The basic problem with the Corinthians is they're divided all over the place. That's the problem of the whole book. Uh, some are boasting because they were baptized by this guy and others baptized over here. There's competitiveness uh, in First Corinthians 11. The issue is that they uh, the wealthy haves those who who would be able to host these the, where the churches would meet. They had the homes that could fit these people um, were, were despising those who didn't have any resources. And so they were I mean, Paul says they were eating and drinking beforehand to the point where they were getting drunk on the the Lord's Supper before everybody else was showing up. There are a lot of problems with that. (laughs) Um, 
But so one of the issues is that they're divided. And I think that that's actually the primary issue is that. Um, and so to discern the body is to recognize uh, the unity of the church. And the Corinthians were not doing that. OK, how are our desires reordered? How are we formed in this? Uh, the Lord's Supper is communion with Christ by the spirit. OK, there's real personal presence of Jesus. And I even say it that way rather than saying spiritual presence, because if we're going to say spiritual, we need to capitalize the S. Because when you talk about spiritual, it's easy to slip back over here and think like, well, it's just sort of like some unseen thing. If we talk about communing with Jesus, there is only one Jesus right now. And that Jesus is embodied He's in a resurrected, glorified body at the right hand of the Father in heaven reigning right now. So when we say he is present with us, the only Jesus that can be present is one that is physical and embodied. This is why in the Reformation there was such debate over how is Jesus present in the Supper. Catholics go with transubstantiation, which is uh, that it's based on Aristotelian metaphysics, but it basically says that the, this... Uh, in its essence, the substance of this becomes the body and blood. Um, this is why Lutherans would say with consubstantiation, it's in, with, and under. We know Jesus is embodied. We've got to get him here somewhere, and he's the, this is the only uh, Jesus that we can have. Calvin, uh, incredibly uh, insightful here and incredibly biblical, says, No, Jesus is in heaven embodied now. But the way in which we commune with this risen embodied Jesus... This physical Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's role is huge in this. And so this is why we say it's a mystery. We don't know exactly how this works. But when we come to that table, you are communing on, you are feeding on the risen uh, Jesus, body and blood, by the Spirit. And it's not just a cognitive act that needs to take place. There is a, there's great mystery here. And Calvin says, I don't know how it happens. This is a mystery. But I know that the Spirit does it. And so he would say we are raised up by the Spirit to commune with Jesus. And so in his liturgy, there would be, and sometimes this still happens in uh, communion services, where we say, lift your hearts to the Lord. And then the congregation responds, we lift them up. And so for him, that was a huge part because that was the way in which, uh, by the Spirit, we were recognizing that we would commune with the risen Jesus. Okay, because he's truly present in the supper, real change is possible. He really can reorder our desires and change us. So um, read those quotes uh, at a different time. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Christ and of our forgiveness. It is a memorial as well. Um, And so we just want to emphasize that it's more than that. But it really does. It is something. And I'll actually emphasize that this morning. That uh, this is something that we remember Uh, And there is something that's tangible for us to see. Broken body, poured out blood. That's important for us to see. It assures us and reminds us of Jesus' death and of our forgiveness in him. Um, And then the the larger catechism is great on this and saying, uh, can somebody who doubts, like if you're thinking, I don't. I'm so beaten down right now. I my faith is wavering and it's weak. And I don't know if I should come to the table. Well, what the larger catechism says is you especially should come to the table because this is a place where Jesus is going to reassure you 
of his love for you and of the forgiveness you have in him. So bring those struggles to him and let him assure you by his spirit and have your faith strengthened. And that's what our standards say. Uh, Lord's Supper proclaims the death of Christ, which is important. It's got kind of this missional outworking as well. Lord's Supper symbolizes and furthers the unity of the body of Christ, which is uh, mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 10. That's Paul's point. So we are of one body. That's why we eat of one loaf. Um, yeah, uh, and this is good. Look at the quote from Leonard Vanderzee real quick there. But it's more than a matter of identification. The supper actually forms us into the body of Christ. Sacraments not only inform us, they form us. They not only affirm our personal relationship with Jesus in his sacrifice and victory, but they affirm the character of our koinonia, or fellowship, uh, together as the body of Christ. So it, uh, it symbolizes community and it creates community, we could say. Lord's Supper is a foretaste and anticipation of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Beautiful imagery. We've, we talked some about that in John. It's incredible. Lord's Supper places us in the midst of God's redemptive story. Um, this is food for the journey in some ways. And so it's helpful to see that uh, there are different views on this. Some really like a big chunk of bread. And some friends of mine who've recently planted churches don't do just these little, the little thimbles. They do shot glasses of wine. Um, because they want they they want it to symbolize like you getting all of Jesus. You know, this is like there's something big. You want a big chunk of bread and a big uh, thing of wine, where it's like okay, uh, and that that makes sense too. I mean, you think like this is this is all of Jesus. We want I want all of Jesus I can have. You know, instead of this like little dainty thing. But on the other hand, uh, I think there's some helpful symbolism in it being something small in that. Uh, if we think of where we are now, rightly, as already and not yet, the kingdom is present already, but not yet as it will be. We, we have yet to, this is a foretaste of, it's not the fullness of this wedding feast that we will participate in. And so it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's appropriate to have, I think, something that is smaller and to recognize, yes, we're, we're on our way, but not there yet. And so it's, for the main feast. Yeah, that, yes, a real foretaste, but not yet. This full, full meal. Uh, so we're, we're placing God's redemptive story. How can we give ourselves to the grace of God in the Lord's Supper? I love that now we can just say, attend worship. And that might sound like a small thing, but um, this is where it gets back to our first question. Uh, don't downplay the what Jesus can do in you by just attending to the supper weekly. Um, and this is, I'm so excited about this, that... Uh, because I think this is a, a, a chief way in which we will be more and more made into the image of Jesus. And so to do this weekly is, is beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, that, that is, that is a, it's, just a, it's huge. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Hugely important. Um, meditate on Jesus' words. I love John 6. There's debate as to whether Jesus is actually intending that to be sacramental there. I think it is. Um, I think that's the reason John doesn't have an institute, an account of the institution of the Lord's Supper is because John 6 is there. There are other points, but this is where Jesus says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you don't have my life in you. I think it's sacramental. Uh, thirdly, prepare by ensuring that you're in right relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ so much as it depends on you. 
uh, it represents the unity of the body. And you'll see uh, in the instructions for communion that because this uh, shows forth the unity of the body and it furthers our unity, uh, it's important to be in right relationship with people. And so there's some churches where they'll actually provide time before the observance and celebration of the supper to go be reconciled with one another. And you got people like up talking with each other. I've never seen this personally, um, but they're just trying to take that aspect seriously. So allow that to be a healthy impetus towards reconciliation, uh, asking for forgiveness or extending forgiveness, whatever the case may be. And I have importantly there as much as it depends on you, because they're extenuating circumstances where you might seek forgiveness from somebody and they refuse it. And that's not your fault. You should come to the table still. Uh, questions for reflection for you. Uh, further reading on there. I have that uh, book, that last book on baptism. It's a it's a um, a collection of articles on infant baptism, but it's really helpful too, just to provide a more robust theology of baptism generally. And so that's great. Let me pray for us.